National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and even from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a great show for you today with one of the most highly respected senior military officers in America. Our guest today is Minnesota native General Joseph Otell, now a retired U.S. Army four-star officer and the former commander of U.S. Central Command, responsible for U.S. and coalition military operations in the Middle East, the Levant, and Central and South Asia. During his 39 years in the military, he commanded special operations and conventional military forces at every level. His career included combat in Panama, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Notably, he led a 79-member international coalition that successfully liberated Iraq and Syria from the Islamic State Caliphate. He preceded his assignment at Central Command with service as the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command and before that at the Joint Special Operations Command. And we'll get into a little bit more about that as we go through our show today. In January of 2020, General Joseph Votel became president and CEO of Business Executives for National Security, or BENS as it's known. Votel is also a board member with Minnesota Wire. He serves as a non-resident distinguished fellow at the Middle East Institute and is the distinguished chair of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, from which he graduated in 1980. General Votel also holds master's degrees from the U.S. Army Command and Staff College and the U.S. Army War College. General Joseph Votel, welcome to National Security This Week. John, it's uh, great to be with you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm glad, uh, glad to talk with you and our audience today. Thank you for uh, taking time from your uh, busy schedule with Benz and all you do <laughs> with to Benz do to, to join us. This is, a, this is a show I've really been looking forward to for a long time. Good. I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, so, General, I always like to start our show by learning a little bit more about our guests. Uh, you left Minnesota to head off to West Point in uh, 1976. Is that mm-hmm. right? Do I have that right? That's right. That uh, is right. Okay. What, right. what drew you to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point? Well, uh, John, the dirty secret here is that uh, my path to West Point actually began at the U.S. Naval Academy. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, when, I was, uh, when I was young, when I was 10 years old, my oldest brother lived out in Baltimore, and we went to visit him, and uh, it, it was in 1968, and it was during the, the riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King. So we were doing these little day trips, and one of the day trips that we did was out to the Naval Academy. And we went out there with my some of my siblings, my mom and dad, and my brother, and and I, as a kid from Minnesota, I'd never seen anything like this. And I can remember, you know, seeing this, seeing a parade, seeing this kind of dress right dress uh, institution right here. And I remember turning to my dad saying, "I want to go to school right here." Um, so you know, that was kind of uh, kind of an initial dream. And then yada yada yada, as I went through the whole process here, I ended up at West Point, which was a which was a good decision and a good place for me. So uh, yeah, so. It was exposure to something that looked really neat and interesting at an early age and something that kind of drove me through my uh, through my grade school and high school years. Uh, so you graduated from West Point and were commissioned a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army in 1980. Uh, for those of us who remember, ni- 1980 was a, was a fairly interesting time. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran had been taken over in 79 and our U.S. country team was being held by the Iranian government. The Soviets had invaded Afghanistan in December of 79. 
Uh, the U.S. men's Olympic uh, ice hockey team beat the Soviet Union and then Finland to win the gold medal in Lake Placid in February of 1980 uh, during your senior year, sir. Uh, one of the few bright spots in America at that time. You began your service uh, to the nation at a time when the Cold War was very much at its height. Uh, President Reagan's election later that year would see a continued post-Vietnam rebuilding of the U.S. military. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed a decade later in 1991, and then a decade after that, Al-Qaeda carried out uh, the terrorist attacks on September 11th of 2001. I think it's safe to say that your career started with great power competition, uh, saw the end of the Cold War, ushered in a period of uh, relative safety and national security dominance by the United States, and then we shifted to a global counterinsurgency effort to defeat uh, Salafi jihadism. We find you in a leadership position uh, critical for the fight against uh, Salafist jihadism with the Islamic State while you were in command at U.S. Central Command, and you defeated the Islamic State, uh, for what we could say, uh, before you retired. And then we shifted back to this great power competition with the United States, China, and Russia sort of at the forefront of that. You've seen America really come full circle with regard to strategic challenges uh, during the course of your military career. Uh, we have much to discuss today as a result. I'd like to begin with this first question. Philosophically, how do you view the experiences of your career in the U.S. Army against this backdrop of a fundamentally changed world today with such serious strategic challenges now ahead of America yet again? Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great question, and it, it was an extraordinary period to be in the military uh, in the early, to join the military in the early 80s, and there certainly was a lot going on. I'm not sure I fully appreciated just how significant it was at the time, but I certainly do looking back. And, you know, I, I think for me, uh, as I kind of put this all in context, I, I had a really good grounding. I, um, my first assignment was to West Germany when West Germany was still a entity and uh, I served in the 3rd Infantry Division, 1st Time, 4th Infantry. And the officers that were in a lot of the NCOs that were leading that organization, I showed up as a brand new lieutenant who had been Vietnam veterans. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to notice, particularly this year as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War, how influential that group of leaders was on me and my generation of officers. Literally all the instructors I had at West Point were Vietnam veterans. They had been through this experience of Vietnam. Uh, they had come out of that, and they were really they, they were really unified in this idea of making sure that the Army and the military survived out of this, that the institution regained its, its greatness. Not that it lost it, but really it, there, was, there was a little uh, scratching of the luster that as we came out of, uh, came out of Vietnam, that wasn't a popular conflict, and I think we all know the impact it had on it. But this idea of being well-grounded was really important. So I went to, a, I went to an organization that uh, really believed in the fundamentals, and we really focused in on readiness at the lowest level, and every person, every organization, every you know subordinate organization being able to do their own part and uh, it really it really set me up well and so and, and I continued on that and so what what allowed us to transition when we got into the global war on terror were I think were these organizations that were really well grounded in the fundamentals could do basic war fighting things well were really great in the you know had mastered the basic tasks and so when we got found ourselves in places like Afghanistan Iraq Syria you know, you name any of these places we've been over the last 25 years, um, we had a good basis to to divert from. 
to to uh, respond to the situation in which we we're at. So, you know, as, and now as I've now kind of watched this, and I began to see this at the end of my career, we've now actually begun to swing back towards this great power competition with a with kind of a rising China. And again, it has been this it has been this mastery, it has been this basic, it has been this focus on fundamentals that's gonna that's gonna allow us to I think to to successfully make that transition. So for me, it's always been about the basics and doing the basics really well. And I think this is what sets us up to to respond to the situations that are presented to us by by history. And, and I just, uh, you won't know this yet, but uh, I, I had, uh, two weeks ago, I had uh, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, uh, Joanne Bass, uh, join me on the show. And we spent a lot of time talking about the importance of the the non-commissioned officer corps in the services and how vital that aspect of our service structure has been for our success in in protecting American national security interests. Uh, would you comment a little bit about on you know, that throughout your career, yeah, the importance I, uh, of NCOs? I mean, my very first platoon, when I showed up and stepped in front of my first platoon, all three of my squad leaders and my platoon sergeant were all Vietnam veterans. Uh, they had been around. Uh, they had been around uh, the world a little bit and kind of knew what the score was. And uh, you know, it was kind of it was a really interesting situation. You had to, you had kind of earn your spurs a little bit with it, but yet they were invested in me and making sure that I was successful. And I mean, they think when they when they appreciated that I was serious about my job, they became serious about making me a good officer. And so I was very uh, was very dependent upon that. And of course, you know the the. I'll just speak about the Army, but I think this applies to our other services. You mentioned Joanne and uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy and the non-commissioned officer programs there are superior. But the the American military is the envy of others because of our non-commissioned officer corps. It really is something that sets us apart and really makes us different, that we can empower leaders at a low level uh, to, you know, do all the tasks uh, that, that, that they should be in terms of taking care of our troops and leading them in tactical operations and and officers can step back and do the things that they do best which is you know motivating which is planning which is directing which is guiding organizations towards uh, towards the objectives that fit our national strategy so i mean this is uh, this is very very unique i i had the luxury frankly of really serving with a lot of great ncos in fact the, the i had the same sergeant major jsoc that I had at SOCOM, that I had at CENTCOM. We were together nearly eight years. In fact, when we both retired around the same time, and in fact, at, uh, at, our, at our retirement ceremony, somebody noted that our time together was actually longer than the average American marriage. <laughs> uh, uh, so, I mean, that's just, and, and I was so well served by, by, you know, Command Sergeant Major Bill Fetford, who was my, who was my NCO and who really took good care of me and gave me great counsel along the way. This is, this is really an asymmetric advantage for us. Yeah, that's a great point, sir. Uh, so as I mentioned in the, and we'll, by the way, I want to return back to some discussions about our force uh, forces, uh, men and women who serve in our forces a little bit later. But as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you currently lead BENS, which is Business Executives for National Security. Uh, wh- what is BENS, and how should listeners think about the organization that you lead today? Yeah, so BENS, Business Executives for National Security, is a national nonprofit. It's actually headquartered in Washington, D.C. It's been around for a little over 40 years, and it has one very simple, constant mission, and that is to link expertise, insights, observations, 
from the private sector back to our partners in the national security enterprise um, to kind of help address government, uh, you know, government national security challenges. Uh, and it really perpetuates this idea that security of the nation is really the work of everybody, not just the military, not just the government, but it's really the work of everybody. And when you look back in our history, you look at things like the end of World War II, you know, what took place after the end of World War II was the implementation of the Marshall Plan, which, you know, which was not led by the military and it wasn't led by our diplomats, it was led by the American private sector. It was American business leaders that stepped into leadership positions in both Japan and and Germany and rebuilt our rebuilt our, our former adversaries uh, and created this system that we have right now. So Ben's in, in uh, uh, you know, endeavors to do that. And we, we're made up of about 400 members across the nation. A lot of these uh, executives are outside of the space and defense area. So it represents everything. It represents manufacturing, telecommunications, healthcare, advanced technologies, uh, utilities, transportation, everything. And, and what you find is that a lot of the work of the government is in fact business and they can learn from this and so what we try to do is link that expertise in the private sector with our partners in the in the government to help contribute to the security of our country now on that uh, on that theme uh, back in uh, i guess it was 16th of june uh, you uh, co-authored an opinion piece in the hill with uh, liz schreyer who, who heads up yeah. uh, the u.s global leadership coalition on a diplomacy and de- development toolkit uh, essential to a u.s china strategy uh, would you like to talk just a minute or two about that? Article? Yeah. So you know, the uh, I think one of the things that you, I learned, I certainly learned, as I became more senior and I was leading uh, kind of our large combatant commands um, here, is that you know it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of partners to to accomplish you know the objectives of our nation, and we need to make sure that that we're leveraging all of the tools in the toolkit. And in many cases, uh, the military solution might not be the right approach in some of these areas. And so what uh, what the purpose of the article that Liz and I co-authored was to draw attention to this, particularly for our members of Congress, to make sure that in when we uh, when we start approving our authorizations and appropriation acts here, that we continue to make sure that all of our government partners, in particular our diplomatic partners, have the tools that they need uh, to to move to move forward and to help secure our country um, and help uh, help uh, help support our our interests uh, along the way. So what we want to do is draw attention to that. You know, uh, Jim Mattis, former Secretary of Defense, once observed when he was testifying, uh, was asked a question about this, and and his response I think was pretty appropriate. Says, "Well, if you're not going to support the Department of State, then you need to buy me more ammunition because that's what it's going to take." So these are these are unique skills, and this is a unique way for the for the. Uh, for the U.S. government to have an influence in places like Africa, South America, across the Middle East, and a variety of other places out in the Pacific, where we can use all of the tools that we have, uh, economic tools, diplomatic tools, informational tools, in addition to our military tools, to really pursue our interests. So that was the whole object of the, of the article that we wanted to, wanted to write. Uh, yes, sir. That, this show, uh, National Security This Week, we do spend a good bit of time talking about the tools of national power, diplomacy, the power of information, military and economic power. 
and how the application of those tools really is the art and science of, uh, of statecraft. That's right. That's right. Uh, this topic of the business community supporting the military and, and broader national mm-hmm. security interests brings me to uh, one of the commands that you led, uh, U.S. Special Operations Command, better known as SOCOM. Uh, U.S. Special Operations Command oversees the Special Operations Forces, or SOF, from each of the military services, ensuring those highly trained and specialized forces have the equipment they need to execute a wide range of operations around the world. I have a couple of quick questions for you on this topic. First, how should listeners perceive U.S. military personnel who are members of the Special Operations Forces community? What's different about those men and women from personnel in the conventional forces? And secondly, how is SOCOM different from the other combatant commands when it comes to budgets and acquisition programs? And why is that such a strength for the soft community? They, they, they sort of have a man-train-equip function like the services do as a combatant command. Is that right? That's, uh, that is correct. Um, so let, let me just start and talk a little bit about SOCOM. So, you know, um, SOCOM is made up of, uh, of uh, service members who come from the services, uh, and they go through a special selection process that brings them into uh, the special operations organizations, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, Army, uh, that, uh, that make up uh, the, the SOCOM components. So, so the first thing that I think is important to appreciate is that, is that the people that, that, that come to this community are specially selected. They go through a very rigorous selection process that isn't just about weeding people out, but it's really about identifying the right skills that we need um, to, you know, for, the, for the organizations and the missions that, that this organization uh, has as a responsibility. The second thing is that for American people to appreciate is that the SOCOM isn't some weird separate entity off to the side doing its own deal. They are very much integrated into everything else. And this, I think, has been, if there's been a benefit to being at war for 20-plus years, I think this is this is one of it, that we have become much more interdependent uh, between conventional forces and soft forces. Frankly, Soft forces can't do anything without the conventional force support. And conventional force operations are really enhanced by the unique capabilities that SOCOM brings to the table. So there is a symbiotic relationship between both of them. And we have grown to operate in a much more much more effective effective way. SOCOM is really a unique animal. It's a combatant command. It's one of ten standing combatant commands. So as the as the as the leader of it, I was I was a commander. I answered to the Secretary of Defense and ultimately to the President in that particular case. And I had as my responsibility both an operational role for the employment of soft forces, but also, as you noted, this very important, what we refer to as kind of a Title X role for the manning, training, equipping, raising of the force, uh, which is a, is a very, it's very, this is a very unique organization. There really are no other organizations like this out there. And we had um, some uh, some acquisition authorities so we could pursue our own acquisition uh, of equipment and capabilities that we needed, uh, the ability to test things and get them out there very, very <clears throat> quickly. So in many ways, we had these service-like responsibilities, but we were also a combatant command as well, responsible for operational missions. And, and as I understand it, the, uh, the acquisition programs that are done through SOCOM uh, they're very, they're significantly more agile, I would say, than your than what we would see in the services, and a lot of those those capabilities that are honed mm-hmm. those those technologies, uh, you know, uh, whatever the technology is, whatever the acquisition program is, 
can be transitioned sometimes into the conventional forces to go more broadly to support advanced capabilities for the conventional forces. Is that part of the mission of special operations? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, and we do we, we do look for some of these things to be transferred into the uh, into the conventional forces. But I, I would highlight this. And I think it's important for people to appreciate this. SOCOM doesn't have some separate acquisition process or set of rules that that guides them. They actually operate under the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR and uh, the rules the, the rules that apply. What's different in SOCOM is the culture. Uh, how we do it. And so what, what SOCOM has done so well is linking the operator to the, to the acquirer and the equipper and really shortening this, uh, shortening this link and, and using every, uh, every tool they can to move quickly so that when, when a warfighter in the SOCOM community says, hey, I need this capability, it's, it's all hands on deck to make sure that person can uh, that that person that unit has what it needs to accomplish the mission. So I think what's really different is is uh, is the culture of, uh, of of that that surrounds these acquisition rules and that, and that has given ground to people moving quicker, being being more agile, being more responsive to people on the ground. And that in turn I think has been a really good model for others to others to emulate. I have one more question for you on this acquisition side of things because it is such a critical part of what the Department of Defense does to prepare uh, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, guardians, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, for uh, combat deterrence hopefully first but combat if necessarily Uh, how does the current dod acquisition system work and and just broadly sir if you could you were a you were a combatant commander in two different locations uh, at centcom that has been one of our primary combatant command uh, uh, headquarters for a long long time as i understand it combatant commanders are the ones who signal requirements back to the services to, to set the acquisition process in motion. So how, how does that work briefly, sir? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I'll try to answer in just a, just a maybe a couple of minutes here. But you know, the acquisition process is uh, is a is a is it's it's part it's part of a bureaucracy around how we actually bring systems into the military. There's a lot of stakeholders in this. It's not just the the operators who are using the equipment and the services that are provided, but it's also industry. It's also Congress. Uh, it's also the administration that uh, that plays into this. So there are a lot of actors in this. And over time, uh, because of these interests, the system, the acquisition system has become uh, a little bit cumbersome and it moves slow. What, what it does, however, is it, it does produce some pretty extraordinary systems uh, that, uh, that uh, get out there. I mean, take a look at what the Air Force just did with their B-22 or B-21 bomber. This is ahead of schedule, under cost, an extraordinary system that's going to serve the nation well, particularly as a deterrent capacity. Sometimes that that doesn't work out well, and when we have and we have problems with it. So it it is a slow moving process because there's a lot of money, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in it, um, and uh, and sometimes that doesn't that doesn't work uh, to our benefit here in terms of uh, moving moving quickly and. And it's one of the things that we at Benz now are actually working with our government partners on is how do we how do we actually reimagine the industrial base, the acquisition process that supports that in a way that allows us to move much more quickly, much more agilely, particularly against an actor like China 
that that is not bound by uh, by a, a bureaucratic system is is got a ton of money is pouring it into it and is moving very very quickly in a variety of different ways. So we, what we have to do is we have to have a more agile system that uh, that uh, that allows us to to bring stuff into this. And, and and the environment around this has changed a lot as well, John. You know there was when when the acquisition process was conceived, the U.S. government was driving most of research and development and technology. That's completely flip-flop today. Now the private sector does that. So we have, instead of being, um, you know, driving all of this kind of stuff ourselves, the Department of Defense has to get much better at, at being a buyer and being, being willing to reach out and grab onto great technology that's being developed in the private sector and bring it over for, uh, for military applications. We're actually seeing some of this in Ukraine right now, uh, some very effective examples of how that's, uh, how that's being done. But, yeah, the, the system is, is, was designed for one thing. It's, it needs to change. There's no doubt about it. It has to be more agile. It has to be more responsive. Uh, and it has, to, it has to leverage the private sector in a much more effective way. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army General Joseph Votel, who leads the organization Business Executives for National Security, commonly known as BENS. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, General, uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, Central Command was one of your one of your commands as a combatant commander. Uh, after leading U.S. Special Operations Command, you shifted over to take command of U.S. Central Command, conveniently enough, both located at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Not a big move uh, as far as that goes. Most people uh, don't know that uh, those two commands are right there at McDill, but uh, what is Central Command's mission specifically? What, what, what were you tasked to do <clears throat> as the combatant commander in charge of Central Command? So, yeah, so I mentioned that uh, in our military system, uh, we have 10 combatant commands, and, and these combatant commands are four-star headquarters that are uh, commands that are led by four-star officers that answer. They are the, basically the president and the secretary's commanders, essentially. We answer to the secretary of defense and ultimately the president of, uh, of the United States, uh, and each has uh, has specific uh, responsibilities, sometimes more functional, like SOCOM. I would, I would, you could describe that more as a functional uh, command that is focused on special operations forces, and then CENTCOM, which is a regional command, which has responsibility for military activities in a specific region of the world. And so CENTCOM is responsible for all of our military activities in the area we think of as the Middle East, the Levant, and Central and South Asia. So essentially uh, Lebanon to Pakistan and Kazakhstan to Yemen. Uh, is kind of the area that uh, that uh, falls in this, and it includes uh, some notable locations: Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the the Arabian Gulf, um, uh, are are all uh, in, involved in in that. So, you know, this is a this is an area where there's you know there's a lot going on. It's really been a hotbed for uh, terrorist activity directed against us and our friends and allies for a long period of time. But it's also an area that. Uh, where we have a lot of important United States interests. And so the military, uh, our diplomatic efforts, other things here are, are really important to addressing, uh, addressing the nation's uh, national security concerns. And so my responsibility as a CENTCOM commander was to be responsible for all of the 
joint military activities that are taking place in that in that region. Uh, so after 9-11, much of Central Command's primary mission was, was hunting down and capturing and killing terrorists and, or insurgents in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, wherever else uh, uh, the president assigned uh, the mission. How, how much interaction was there between U.S. Central Command and the Special Operations Forces under U.S. SOCOM for that counterterrorism and counterinsurgency missions between 9-11 and, and when you retired? Yeah, well, this is uh, this is daily multiple opportunity interactions that are taking place between uh, special operations forces and the conventional forces in in the in the CENTCOM region, and uh, and and I actually think this has been something that has been vastly improved. As I kind of mentioned before, there is this there is an extraordinary interdependence between conventional forces and and soft forces. Um, and uh, in this area, so was CENTCOM responsible for everything? All soft activities, all conventional force activities are taking place. So that that CENTCOM really becomes the uh, becomes the nugget that pulls it that pulls all of this together. So that relationship is is very deep, is very strong, uh, and uh, and you know kind of continues to be that way. It hasn't always been that way. Uh, I think it's important to to appreciate that you know SOCOM got its start out of the uh, the failed Iranian hostage mission that you mentioned along uh, you know earlier in our discussion and in the beginning there was a there was a tendency for a number of years for soft forces to operate very independently to go in and do things and then come out of there and and not interact too much with uh, with uh, the conventional forces that are that are that are operating in these areas that 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 could not survive uh, during uh, the global war on terrorism because because of this interdependence that I've been talking about here. We, they had necessary capabilities. Conventional forces had necessary uh, enabling uh, capabilities that soft needed, and so there was a very symbiotic relationship. And so this has developed into a very, very close relationship. And in fact, what you'll find is if you went to CENTCOM headquarters, you would see uh, soft officers, non-commissioned officers, represented in that headquarters, integrated into the staff, and and everything. So it's a very, very close and deep relationship that's developed over a, over a number of years, and I think it has really served the nation quite well, frankly. Lots of important lessons learned uh, from from those <clears throat> operations, uh, sir. Before we take a, just a short break to, to recognize our sponsor, can you talk about the importance of working closely with our allies? Uh, to defeat the Islamic State forces. I, I know the Kurds in northern Syria and Iraq played a vital role in those operations. Syrian Kurds, known as the Syrian Defense Forces, currently guard the remnants of the Islamic State, widows and orphans of Islamic State fighters mostly. I think it's at the all-whole uh, uh, facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 60,000 uh, people, mm-hmm. as I understand, are being held there right now. How, how concerned are you uh, about the children of Islamic State fighters and then, in fact, they may soon be old enough to take up arms and restart the fight for the caliphate, especially out of all whole. So I guess the, the question is importance of allies. And then what do you see as a concerning issue with a, a place like al Hol? Yeah. So let me talk, let me start on al Hol and talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, my, I'm, I'm kind of on the record as saying that I think that uh, locations like al Hol are the, are the, are the seeds of the next insurgency of the next terrorist organization that we're going to we're going to face, and so getting getting these women and children, and in some cases men, 
back to their home countries and getting them through uh, de-radicalization programs and getting them uh, held accountable for the things that they've done, but also getting them de-radicalized, I think, is a very important uh, important challenge. And it's been difficult, uh, frankly. Uh, I think at the height of it, uh, I think we're probably somewhere in the 50 to 60,000 range now. But at the height of it, this was probably 80 80, 85,000 women and children in these camps. This is huge. Uh, and a lot of, and they're coming from a variety of countries around the world. And uh, in many cases, these countries did not want to take these citizens back. So this has been a particular burden on our diplomatic board to try to do this. So I'm very concerned about this. And I, I think when you look at refugee camps, when you look at displaced person camps uh, and things like this, and this is, this is all too familiar of a feature in a place like the Middle East, um, and, and in other locations, I would imagine these are all things that we should be concerned about. We should be trying to get these people reintegrated back into communities, back into places where they came from, and uh, and trying to normalize this. When we set people apart from this, then we are creating opportunities for more and more radicalization. And these are now children that have now grown up for a number of years knowing nothing different than what they're being taught by by their adults who are completely radicalized uh, persons. So I'm, I'm very, very concerned about this. To the other part of your point here, and that is the importance of, of allies. <clears throat> so a unique feature of, I think, of American military operations has been our focus on doing things in a coalition environment. I, I think our approach has been we are always better together uh, in working with our partners. And certainly when you look at an alliance like NATO, and particularly now when you look at NATO and how it has come together and been this force that has been so critical to addressing the challenges we're facing in Ukraine right now with the with the Russian invasion and the operations that are taking place right now, this I think is Exhibit A and the importance of, of alliances. In, in the Middle East, we were very dependent upon this. Uh, the coalition that I had an opportunity to lead was a 79-member coalition. Most of those independent nations, some entities involved in that, NATO, uh, a couple of other uh, organizations that that were part of this, uh, but all of those partners brought unique capabilities to the to the to the coalition. In some cases, that was unique military capacity. In other cases, it was diplomatic support. In other cases, it was the ability to use their bases or some of their locations for staging and and moving logistics. And in other cases, it was people that provided money or material in kind to support the support the campaign. So you know, part of my job as the combatant working with my colleagues at the Department of State was really to pull that together and keep that coalition very, very strong and make sure everybody was, you know, contributing in a way that uh, was meaningful for them and impactful for our, for our campaign. But this is, again, another <clears throat> asymmetric advantage of the United States. Our, our list of of friends and allies always has to be longer than our adversaries is. And when we're able to do that, then we're almost always going to succeed. And so, you know, a lot of our work today, especially as we've, as we've ended our war in Afghanistan and a large part in Iraq and Syria, although we still have forces on the ground there, really is about continuing to build partnerships, not just in the Middle East, but in other other parts of the world, um, and, and create this interdependency and these really strong relationships between our military, our nation, and uh, and our friends out there, who who, for the most part, share many of the same 
objectives and concerns that we have. So to me, this is a, a really important aspect of American fighting uh, and, a, and, a, and a very asymmetric approach to how we how we succeed moving forward. Sounds like it goes back to one of those uh, critical soft truths about you cannot surge trust in a time of crisis. That's uh, that's exactly and that's exactly what this is about. And uh, you know, uh, Admiral Bill McRaven used to always talk about this: this idea you can't in a time of crisis you can't surge trust. You've got to develop that beforehand. That's not the time when you get in a situation. And we've been fortunate in a number of occasions. When we went back to uh, Iraq in, uh, in 2014, when President Obama sent us back in there uh, uh, because of the ISIS situation, we depended upon relationships that we had with the Iraqi Kurds to get people on the ground quickly. And there's no doubt. I mean, we literally called friends that we had from our, our from when we were there and when we left in 2011, and renewed those relationships very quickly. And they they enabled us to get right back in there and to be very, very effective and get established quickly. So this idea of trust is absolutely essential to everything that we're doing here, and and that especially applies with our with our international partners. Uh, General, we have to take uh, just a a short uh, 60-second break uh, to identify our sponsor. We will be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back, National Security This Week, with retired U.S. Army General Joseph Votel, commander, former commander of U.S. Central Command, who now leads business executives for national security. Uh, General Votel, I'd like to focus just a little bit more on some topics in the Middle East, if we could. I'd like to start with your view of the Iranian nuclear program. We know Iran has enriched uranium to a significant purity at this point, and they could break out, as, the, as they say, with uh, true <clears throat> weapons-grade plutonium fairly quickly if they actually wish to do so. As a former theater combatant commander, especially you know the commander of Central Command, what what kinds of things would you be considering right now if you were back in that role with regard to this particular U.S. national security challenge? Well, I think one of the most important things we have to think about is how do we deter Iran from from moving on that breakout and hold at risk things that they value, um, so that they don't do something that uh, you know would destabilize the Middle East or threaten. Uh, threaten our our friends and neighbors in the area, or threaten uh, the use of U.S. forces. So, uh, you know, what I would be thinking about is what are the tools that I have to actually hold hold the uh, the Iranian regime at risk, uh, whether that is uh, military capacity or uh, uh, maybe bringing together um, uh, partners in the region um, uh, into, into more of an alliance and dependency on each other. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I would be thinking about. Today, we don't have as many resources in the Middle East as we once had. We don't have a 
for example, we don't have the constant presence of a U.S. carrier uh, any longer. Though that's a that's a very unique capacity, and with that, we can hold a lot of things at risk. Uh, and but we have much we have a much more diminished force presence in the Middle East. So we have to look at other ways that we can do this. And one of the most important ways we're doing this is by building relationships with our other Gulf Arab partners, uh, the uh, the countries on the other side of the Gulf, away from Iran, whether it's Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Emirates, Qatar, Oman. Uh, this is uh, this is really important. And one of the things that I think has been very helpful in this has been the um, uh, kind of the uh, uh, the improved relationships between Israel and some of the Gulf Arab uh, nations. Uh, they have not they have not all normalized that, but certainly Bahrain and the Emirates have. Um, and these are these are good things to build upon. And there's 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 some common. Uh, there's some common interests, security interests here. They both have real concerns about uh, about Iran. Um, so building these strong relationships, I think, are, are are another important aspect of this. So we, I think, what I'm back to back to your question. I think the idea is you always got to be doing things that make Iran think today's not the day to do this. Today's not the time to surge in terms of this because there's going to be a response and we're not going to prevail in the end. And I think this is uh, this is really an important an important aspect of uh, of the things that the combatant commander has to be has to be prepared to do. So I I, I think I, it's important for our for all of our listeners to understand that the the four star combatant commanders that we have, especially the the theater combatant commanders like you were at at U.S. Central Command. You're not waiting around for uh, direction necessarily from the, the Secretary of Defense and the President. You know that you have a, a responsibility and imperative to really prepare options to give to National Command Authority based on whatever crises might erupt or whatever guidance you receive when you when you actually receive it. So you're you're maneuvering forces. You're uh, you're preparing those forces. You're preparing contingency plans. You're working with allies to build these capacities so that we are ready. Uh, in any particular combatant theater to execute operations if directed to do so by the president is is that a good summary of what what your what your yeah, that's right i mean uh, you know one of the one of the really unique uh, capabilities i had at centcom headquarters i had a very robust uh, plans and strategy uh, directorate here that uh, you know that really was composed of not just uh, military non-commissioned officers and officers but also a very dedicated cadre of professional civilians who had been around for a long time understood the region and and they really helped us think through the contingencies the plans all the things that we needed to be prepared to do so that we we could do this and I think this is something the military does quite well is this planning uh, and making sure that we are looking at the contingencies that uh, that can emerge with this and and taking action where we can in accordance with the authorities that have been given to us to make sure that we are we are maintaining the initiative and and uh, and and prevailing in, in supporting our national interests here it's really important I think to, to for our listeners to also appreciate that there's an ongoing dialogue with the, with the National Security Council and the, and the, and the civilian leadership in in washington dc uh you know we the military is led by the civilians we we adhere strictly to the uh the the principle of civilian control of the military so the president is the commander-in-chief and and uh, the secretary of defense is his operator in doing that they're both civilians so we respond to that uh so we have to communicate we take direction from them uh but uh but what you also see is a is a lot of initiative a lot of efforts that are undertaken 
taken in the theater to improve, always improve our position, always be looking at things, always be anticipating, communicating frequently on the things that we're seeing so that we can we can be ready for the situations that uh, that are developing or that we expect and anticipate to develop in the future. I'm going to pull a lot of the threads that we've been talking to get about uh, so far today in, in, into a question for you, sir. We mentioned earlier the, the process that uh, theater combatant commanders like you would use to signal force structural requirements to the services, the Department of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Those requirements concern manpower, platforms, weapons, uh, munitions, uh, as well as the capabilities needed to deter or defeat other nations' uh, militaries if, if that is required. Let me ask you a, a rather challenging question here. The U.S. is providing staunch support to the Ukrainians to defeat the, the Russian invasion uh, and hopefully for the Ukrainians to actually uh, recapture territory lost early in the conflict, part of their uh, offensive that they're on right now. America is also doing our level best to bolster allies and friends in the Western Pacific against encroachment by the People's Republic of China. Again, more deterrence. Uh, finally, in your old theater command, Iran is making things a, a little a little difficult for the region uh, as a whole. Does does the United States have? This is a question for you as as the head of Benz. Does the United States have the defense industrial capacity to build the platforms and weapons our forces need to carry out military missions or to achieve military objectives assigned by a national command authority, especially in time of a, a major conventional fight? We haven't really faced that in an awfully long time. Are we prepared right now to deal with that? Uh, well, I think the answer to the question is yes and no. <laughs> you know, I think it's important for, you know, a, a book I would encourage our, our listeners to look at is a book entitled Freedom's Forge, which really talks about how the United States uh, mobilized itself uh, for World War II and created this uh, industrial base that was in direct support of the war effort and really uh, as as important as any fighting organization was critical to our to our victory in both Europe and uh, and the Pacific and uh, so yes we we ha- we we have a lot of capacity in the country we have huge capital markets that we can use to invest in the things we need we have uh, great defense companies that can build things um, that we that we need we have an extraordinary innovation base out here of small business that are very agile and can think about new ideas and are always pushing the limits in in terms of this but uh, those are all those are all in the plus category but as we've talked about we have some things in the negative category that we have to address we have to have an acquisition process that is much more agile to what we need to do we need to look for ways that we leverage uh, the private sector technology research and development capacities uh, particularly in dual use areas here where things that are as applicable in the in the civilian market or can be applicable in the, in the security market as uh, as well we've got to incentivize more companies to get into the middle of the of the industrial base today we have a very we have these big companies at the top we have this um very uh, large uh, small business innovation base but uh, we're a little bit hollowed out in the middle and getting people into the middle the middle companies are really critical for reshoring supply lines and and scaling up innovation. Um, and we've got to look at our infrastructure aspects. Uh, we've got some real challenges here. Uh, we haven't spent a lot of money on our on our four public shipyards in a long time, and they're falling behind what we need to, to get our ships in and get them maintained and back out to the fore. So all of this is within our capacity. 
to to do. But we've got to get organized here, and and we have to reimagine, um, uh, you know, kind of the current version of freedom sports. How the whole we take the, all the capabilities of the nation and we bring them together to make sure that our way of life and the way of life that many around the world have enjoyed can prevail here as we as we move forward. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot that has to be done, uh, but we but the raw materials are there. And, and above all of that, John, the most important thing is we've got great people uh, all over the place. Um, you know, the, the younger generations, these are extraordinarily, uh, you know, smart capable people who will, who will help us think through these problems. We've got to get the right people into the right positions, and, uh, and we've got to let people exercise their initiative, and we've got, to, we've got to embrace this as we move forward. It's going to be absolutely critical to us as we, as we move forward. So we've got, to, we've got the right materials. we just got to get it organized now and make sure that we, are, uh, we have reimagined what our industrial base looks like. Now, you've been a, a strong advocate for this, uh, this reform movement back in uh, January, uh, you co-authored with uh, Francis Finelli and Samuel Cole uh, an article in uh, War on the Rocks, a relatively extensive article uh, titled Leveraging U.S. Capital Markets to Support the Future Industrial Network. Uh, I, I know for a fact that when people uh, put their ideas out there to the public, <laughs> everybody starts shooting at those ideas. What have you learned uh, in, in, the, uh, in the six months since this article came out? about this challenge that we face with the defense industrial base and really getting it up to the point where it it can truly support us were we to get in a a serious conventional theater uh, conflict. Well, I think the most important thing you learn is that change is hard. And, uh, and, uh, and change has to begin with culture and has to begin with leadership. And uh, this is absolutely critical to, uh, to making these types of changes. And I think when you look at, at fundamental things that have happened in the Department of Defense that have really changed the way we've done things, I think you've seen good examples of that. So if you think back to the late 80s here, uh, when, uh, when Congress mandated through um, – through Nun Cohen, this idea of jointness, that we had to be able to operate with our other services. We could no longer have the Army doing one thing. We, had to, we really had, to, had, to, had to, uh, um, to operate in a much more joint function, uh, fashion. And that has been wildly successful. Congress stepped in. They made the law to do this, and they held people responsible, and they uh, prevented people from moving forward unless they embraced this and met certain criteria. And what, we, what, we, what we've seen out of that is this fantastic military that uh, can, can, do a, can do an extraordinary amount of things and can operate together, uh, and, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of what it takes. So, you know, I think the most important aspect really here is culture and, and leadership um, as, we, as we step forward in this. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to to, we're going to have to let go of some of the things that are are very difficult on uh, on in our acquisition world. Congress has to step into this, you know. And, and uh, again, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to identify villains. There's yeah. there's problems all across the across the from. I mean, the, the the Department of Defense is very comfortable with a with a cumbersome system. To some extent, the the uh, the big 
in, uh, industrial companies are as well. They understand the system. They know how to work within that. Congress, you know, protects systems that are built in their in their home areas. Sometimes beyond their their usefulness to the military, frankly. And we've seen this in systems that have kind of outlived uh, outlived their usefulness and which should have been updated many times. Best. So what what this requires is it requires a level of compromise and coming together uh, to to really put the nation. Uh, put the nation first and not any one entity in all of this and and i and I actually believe that the, that uh, that we can get there on this i 've talked to a number of members of Congress that really that really embrace this i 've talked to people in industry that definitely get this, and I know that the military sees that this has got to be the way forward so you know we need culture we need uh, we need uh, leadership uh, to, to help us move in that direction right now and to me that's the that 's the most important most important ingredients to really changing our industrial base and making sure we maintain the competitive edge to protect our interests going forward. I, I want to stay on this topic, if I could, for our next questions. Our, our listeners on, on this show, they are engaged in the world. Uh, they're constantly paying attention to, to world affairs, which is one of the reasons why they tune into this show each week. I, I think it's safe to say the U.S. and our allies have watched and learned an incredibly important lesson from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what has surprised me most is the the speed at which ordnance has been expended in a major theater war on both sides. Uh, and the fact that we've been speeding, you know, the, the NATO allies, the U.S. included, has been sending an awful lot of uh, ordnance to the Ukrainians. And they, it's you can't give them enough. Uh, they just need an unbelievable amount to defend their country. Uh, I think the U.S. military, as a result of watching this uh, transpire, finds itself having to rethink just how large the orders for ordnance need to be if we're going to be truly ready for high-end conflict in the future, uh, China is an example. And that includes all manner of missiles, artillery shells, uh, bullets, radios, radars, you name it. Uh, I just noted uh, an article that came out a, a couple of days ago, uh, oh no, uh, a month or so ago, the U.S. to sextuple 155 uh, artillery projectile production uh, to improve improve the uh, the arms factories with a 1.45 billion dollar uh, buy. Uh, does Benz have a role in pushing Congress, so the members of Benz, in pushing Congress and, and the executive branch to think more strategically and to pre- prepare more effectively for potential conflict in this new era of great power competition? In other words, do we need to push for multi-year contracts, maybe five years worth of uh, purchase power rather than one budget to the next kind of a thing. Yeah, I think Benz does have a role in terms of this, and these are these are some of the things that we are working with our government partners to help identify the obstacles and the limitations out there that are really preventing us from being from building the readiness that uh, that we need going forward, and making sure that we are prepared. Uh, you know, in the and the hopefully unlikely event that we have to get involved in great power competition here, we have to uh, leverage all these resources that we are prepared to deal with that. I think that's an incredibly important part of the deterrent effect that we are trying to create here. I mean, when adversaries know that we are well prepared, uh, again, it causes them to think, you know what, today is not the day to, to test the United States. And that's what we that's what we need to do. I, I'll, I'll tell you, John, several times over the last uh, year or so, I've driven by the old Twin Cities ammunition plant here that kind of sits in between St. Paul and Minneapolis there. And I've often wondered, boy, I, I wish that was still operating right now. We have one one depot in the United States that produces 155 artillery rounds um, and, uh, you know, the Iowa Army Depot here in the Midwest does extraordinary work 
fantastic people doing 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 the nation's bidding here but that's it and uh so you know we really have to and i'm not you know we have to look at our our industrial capacity and make sure that we have we have what we need um to protect us going forward and whether that means expanding what we have or opening up uh, new infrastructure to uh, meet the needs uh, of the nation. This is critical, uh, and it's not just an artillery. It's an it's in a variety of things, as you noted here, uh, and and the Ukraine example is is helping us see some of this. I mean, think about the importance of something like Starlink for the. Uh, for the uh, for the Ukrainians, their ability to communicate, to receive information, enabling support from the U.S. NATO allies here in their terms of effort, and this this has really enabled everything uh, in terms of. So we we need to be thinking through uh, these types of things, and and this this conflict is being uh, waged at a scale that we have not seen. I, I want to say I think. Uh, that, Several months ago, when I looked at some of the numbers, the Ukrainians were firing like eight to nine thousand one five five artillery rounds a day, and the Russians were about double that. So, I mean, the scale of this is huge, obviously, and uh, and uh, we need to we need to be prepared to meet the challenge that uh, uh, that this is posing for us, and that you know, great power to competition really really sets forth for us as we as we look forward and to me this is a really important part of our readiness of our current effect here of making people think nope today is not the day i i'm sure you and and uh the members of ben's uh probably read the report that came out after the center for strategic and international studies ran a series of uh of scenarios war fighting scenarios uh, over taiwan and uh, most of them resulted in the fact that the United States Navy and even the Air Force had, uh, in these scenarios that they ran, these war games, uh, had expended most of the ammunition in theater in the first 10 days. Uh, and at that point, we are in a big struggle to get that, uh, that material out to our forces uh, on the other side of the world. Uh, these is, I'm assuming these are the kind of things that, that Ben's uh, leadership, uh, all of the members, the leaders of all these companies that, uh, that you are a uh, part of, they're very concerned about this, and, and I'm sure they're trying to address those issues. And I know uh, 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 Representative Gallagher uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives from our neighboring state over in Wisconsin is keenly aware of these challenges. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, he's doing a great job bringing attention to this. And, yeah, you know, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, I mean, these war games uh, are designed to really look at difficult situations and, and understand that. And certainly from a military standpoint, I think we, we've seen some of that and we're learning a lot of that. Interestingly, one of the things that we are working on at Benz, we are working with some other organizations, MIT and CSIS and others on this, about how you actually effectively war game the competition phase around something like uh, Taiwan. You know, we don't. We it's it's not inevitable that we're going to go to war with uh, with China. And in fact, it's not in our interest, and it's not in their interest that we go to war over this. And so, you know, we really have to look at the competition phase here, how we prevail in the competition phase. And of course, what what plays out in the competition phase is not just the military and the diplomatic aspects of this, but also the business and economic aspects of this. We have huge uh, business interests out in the, in the Pacific, have for 
a long time. I mean, this has been a, a an important area for us for many, many decades. Um, and then we kind of consider ourselves to be a Pacific nation. Um, so, you know, this is an important aspect of it. And bringing attention to this and making sure that we can prevail in the competition phase, I think, is is really important. And how we wargame that and think through those aspects of it, I think, is, is as important as the wargaming of the military operations. Uh, General Votel, I want to ask you what I would consider a very difficult question. I, I'm saving the worst, the most difficult question for the for, for last. Uh, I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you saw it, but there was a recent piece on 60 Minutes that uh, lambasted the U.S. defense industry for uh, for what they refer to as sort of unconscionable, deliberate cost overruns on delivering all manner of uh, military equipment to American forces and even to our allies and friends. Uh, there was an incredible extraction of wealth for these comp- companies. Uh, I won't name the specific companies, all at the expense of taxpayer dollars and really potentially threatening the lives of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and, and, and our Space Force guardians, too, uh, through these practices. I can highlight the many articles I have with me today that sort of cover some of this, uh, but uh, I want to talk to you specifically about, uh, you know, for, from your perspective as a, as a for- former two-time combatant commander, uh, retired four-star general and, and and now leader of uh, business executives for national security. How do we fix this aspect of the defense acquisition system uh, between both the Department of Defense and our defense industry partners across America to deliver the most advanced equipment in a timely manner with absolute reliability at the lowest price possible? What I would say, uh, there's a there's a uh, somebody that uh, that you know well, Chip Langan. Uh, he refers to this as the value proposition for taxpayers when we when we buy equipment to, to support our forces. Uh, how, how do we fix this? Yeah, I think uh, well, I think it's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary challenge. And I did see the piece on sixty Minutes about this, and like uh, like most American citizens that uh, that. Uh, that saw that left uh, left it very unsatisfied in terms of where we're uh, where we're going here. Just to 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 put it to put it lightly here, um, you know, I I I think uh, I think a part of this I think is is uh, is is goes back to this discussion we've having about just reimagining uh, not only the relationships but how we operate between the private sector and the government over issues of of national security. I mean, we have had, we've had a system here that's been in place uh, that you know served us well in the Cold War, but hasn't hasn't fundamentally changed going forward. And and uh, and as we find ourselves now against uh, against an adversary that is much different than the Soviet Union, and uh, I would caution our listeners from thinking about what we're dealing with right now is as uh, Cold War 2.0. It's not. Um, not only is China, you know, a rising military, you know, rising military power and, and you know, impressive military capability, but it's also an economic juggernaut. Something the Soviet Union was not, and uh, and uh, and you know already the second largest economy in the world. So uh, this is this this requires us to think much much differently about how we how we approach this. And uh, and I think there are a variety of things that we can do. One is to is to recognize that we. I think first and foremost is to recognize that we are in fact in a competition. Um, that uh, we cannot take for granted that we will prevail just using our current uh, 
current aspects. We have to adopt a a uh, a much more competitive uh, approach to what we are what we are doing here, and that has to start in Congress, has to start in administration, has to go down into the departments, and certainly has to be present in in uh, in our industrial base. Uh, we have to look at how we leverage uh, the considerable. Um, investments that are made that you know the capital markets that we have in our country right now by by some estimates and i'm not really an expert in this area i just hang out with people that are <laughs> um but you know we're talking like 50 trillion dollars in the capital markets and while all that shouldn't necessarily go to defense enough of that can be moved there to make the investments that we need in in infrastructure and in technology in other things that we need and and do it in a way that the private sector can benefit from that but we take advantage of these of this extraordinary uh, again asymmetric advantage that we have in our in our capital markets we've got to look more uh uh, more closely at how the private sector is moving forward on advanced technology. Um, we are we should we should not be spending a lot of money on research and development in the government right now on other on things other than very unique things that are very strictly defense oriented here. Most of the technologies we are approaching now, particularly artificial intelligence and some of those things, these are dual use capabilities. We have to rely on the private sector to help us help us uh, help us with uh, with all of that. And then you know I think we have to make sure we got the right people in in positions not just in government but in the private sector that uh, that are coalesced around this idea of competition and and breaking down the barriers for uh uh for for the bureaucracy and the and the gridlock that we've created in our own system that's been around just just too long i mean i i mean the the solution would be just to just to burn it all down and recreate <laughs> it but i don't think we have that luxury I don't think we have that luxury. What we need is we need a wake-up moment here to recognize that we are, we are, we are, we can lose it all. What's at stake here is is our way of life. If we if we don't get this right, as we as we appreciate it, and as many others appreciate it, and and so we've got to we've got to get focused in on some of these areas here and address this this idea of competitiveness and make sure that we are are moving forward in in a, in a way that allows us to prevail. It's a really hard. It's a really hard uh, question. I know great thinkers and, and uh, business people like Chip. I'm glad they're thinking through this and informing the process. They're they're absolutely critical to to how we do this. Uh, General Rotel, we're we're almost at the very end of our show today. I always like to give my guests uh, sort of the last word on the show. What 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 final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners about uh, the U.S. military, American national security challenges and opportunities, the work at Ben's? Uh, anything you want to address, sir? The the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, John, and, and I've I've really enjoyed enjoyed this uh, this discussion. And so these are always a little bit therapeutic for me here to to talk about all these kinds of issues. I, you know, I, we've talked about a lot of things that can give people uh, a little bit of doom and gloom here, but but I want to I want to I want to end and just tell you I'm I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about our country. Uh, I think uh, I look at uh, science, technology, engineering that's taking place today, and I look at how that can enable. Uh, the human struggle and uh, make us a stronger nation and how we can we can really leverage this uh, i'm i'm i think americans are good people i see it all the time i certainly see it here in our home state uh, whether it's people helping veterans or others in uh, in our community
communities right here. I think these are great things to to build uh, to build upon. Uh, I think uh, I think the quality of our people is extraordinary. Uh, I know some people like to bash sometimes on younger generations. You won't find me doing that. I've had the opportunity to be around a lot of young people that have joined the military or have come in and worked in national security, and I'll tell you something. These are sharp young people. They are dedicated. They care about what they're doing. They care about the nation, and they want to do the right thing. They need to be well-led and directed in the right ways, and uh, I, I think we can do that. So we've got a lot of really good things going for us, but we do have to become serious about the, about the, about the, about the, the security environment in which we're operating today with a lot of threats uh, coming, you know, coming together and all in the context of this rising competition with uh, uh, with China. So I think that's the that's one of the points I'd like to I'd like to uh, really lead people with is this idea that we've got we've got a lot of tools that we can leverage here, and we we will be all right if we can we can leverage our people, we can take advantage of our American spirit and the uniqueness that's made our country so great moving forward. And I, I feel very very confident about that. The second thing I just want to leave with our listeners, and I know we're we've got a lot of listeners right here in the state of Minnesota and the and the greater Midwest is just how proud I am of of our state and the role that we play in this, you know, as the, as the, uh, as a CENTCOM commander, I used to travel around all these countries and have a chance to talk to a lot of troops. And inevitably, whenever I had a group of troops around me, I'd always say, okay, who's from Minnesota? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, it was, it was great. And, you know, you'd always have that kind of the inevitable discussion. Where'd you go to school? You know, uh, where are you from? How do you think the Vikings are going to do this year? Uh, you know, and, and we'd all inevitably agree this is the year the Vikings are going to do it. But my, my point is this, is that I'm here to tell you, the Minnesota National Guard was the most deployed National Guard organization for a number of years and may still be. I'm, I'm a little bit dated now in terms of this, but boy, they were everywhere. The Air Guard. Uh, our reserve forces stationed here in Minnesota, and uh, and our and our Army Guard forces just out there doing spectacular things. It shouldn't go lost by anybody in Minnesota that one of the one of the critical organizations at Kabul when when we were evacuating was a Minnesota National Guard battalion, right there uh, at the, at the edge of freedom, right out there operating right out there at the edge of the envelope for the nation. So should be very very proud of what the what the what what's happening right here in our in our own home state in terms of you know developing people and uh, all the capacity that we need. And, and I just, I'd like to I, I want I want to make sure my fellow Minnesotans uh, appreciate that as much as I do. Unfortunately, that's going to bring our show uh, to a close for this week. General Joseph Otell, who led both U.S. Special Operations Command and U.S. Central Command before retiring and taking the leadership role at Business Executives for National Security. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week, and have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Music.